The interesting reality of our expansion is we restore rivalries. The other expansions haven't done that. Yes, that's right. There have been rivalries renewed with the new look Southeastern Conference. I'm Greg McElroy here with you as always on Always College Football alongside is Mark Kubiak, Jack Foster, and Jake Garcia. We really appreciate you taking some time out with us. The last couple of weeks, we've done deep dives into the big picture world of college football. What's next? What is, what's going on with the ACC? What does that mean for the future of the sport? What does that mean for potential conference realignment? What is the SEC's scheduling format going to look like? We'll hit all those topics with Commissioner Greg Sankey of the Southeastern Conference. And we look forward to our visit with him. We'll also dive into a little bit of a group of five versus power five breakdown in a kind of roundabout way. Will there be an upset this fall involving a group of five team over a power five team? I think yes. And we have to clearly define what exactly is a dynasty. So we'll do all that right here on a Wednesday edition of Always College Football right before Memorial Day weekend. Let's not mess around. It's the conversation with Commissioner Greg Sankey. So thrilled to be joined by the Commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. He's Greg Sankey. Give us a little bit of an update of where we're at in college football. But before we get to where we're at today, I want to first get to where we were eight years ago. You've aged gracefully in what's been a tumultuous eight-year period, Greg. And here we are now. You are the most tenured commissioner in college football amongst the Power Five. How have you handled this so perfectly? If you saw a picture of me, which I have seen this spring several times, in March of 2015 when it was announced I would be the, the conference's eighth commissioner, and compared that to this right now, um, it has aged me. You know, I, I told my wife we were away this weekend. I said, if I was the president, I'd be rolling out of my second term um, in just a few <laughs> short weeks. Well, I know that uh, life as a president and life as a commissioner, those are dog years that you've logged, but we're all better for it. And we appreciate your leadership through some pretty wild times in college football. And you think about just where we're at with the conference expansion conversation. It feels like it never ends. I mean, I know it's not front of mind for you, given where you're at with your 14 current schools and soon to be 16 schools, but how do you kind of stay engaged with what's going on elsewhere while still making sure that your focus is exclusively on your member institutions? Um, you start with the latter part of that question, which is we have to focus on what we are doing as, an, as a Southeastern Conference. So that's our current 14. You can see behind me, game one of the baseball tournament. We need to support that effort with excellence, our spring meetings uh, next week, the activity through the summer. Uh, leading into the fall and football, volleyball, soccer, cross country, and you repeat it all again, which will leave me with less hair and more more gray where it does exist. Um, and so that that has to be the focus. Otherwise, you just jump around. And candidly, I, I watch some others that seem to just be jumping around. I'm not sure of, of the real purpose in some of the messaging and communication. Um, you also have the responsibility to effectively onboard two members in Oklahoma and Texas. And it's not just like, you know, you, you, you grab a pencil and a sheet of paper and you solve all the problems, you know, whether it's scheduling, whether it's where we meet, when we meet, what we meet about, all of those things change every time you expand. And this is, 
the SEC's um, third expansion, each with two, essentially, the Arkansas and South Carolina over, uh, you know, in what, 30 years now, uh, A&M and Missouri were over a decade together and soon to be Oklahoma, Texas. Each of those is different, takes a lot of work. And so I, I watch and I'm attentive to what others are saying, but we have a responsibility to, to lead with excellence here. And if, if we have to adjust or need to adjust, uh, we want to be thoughtful about that just as we've been over our history. Well, it's, it's amazing the different eras that we live in and how back in 2012, that initial expansion, it was about households. And, and now it's kind of shifted a little bit to where households are considered, but maybe not a primary focus of why you would expand. So when you evaluated Texas and Oklahoma, and if you were to evaluate future members 10, 12 years from now, whenever that day may come, what do you anticipate being the highest priority when considering the possibility of further realignment? I'll speak to the last two, and, and we can go back to, to 2012 as well. I'll be careful about speculation on the future. Um, but I think you can see in the last two membership transitions into the Southeastern Conference a mentality. Um, so one is that there is something still for us from a geographic standpoint. Um, I've had kind of branding specialists say you could do what Kentucky Fried Chicken did and go just KFC. So we could lose the Southeastern Conference moniker and just become the SEC. Uh, but that's not really who we are. And when we expanded, I just did the math on this over the weekend. We added 95 miles basically to our, our travel, our longest trip. And our longest trip is shorter than the shortest trip that the LA schools will have in the Big Ten. And we are still educational entities. We are still uh, moving people from class and to class and final exams matter. And as does scheduling, high level competition. Uh, we also saw in those geographically proximal universities kind of a philosophical alignment around how they support their collegiate athletic programs and what they are as a university. So we're going to have right now we have 14 leading universities. Uh, we'll have 16. We have 14 programs competing for national championships uh, with, with every ounce of energy they can muster. Uh, we'll add two more that approach it the same way. And, and so that really is what has um, informed our decision making. We've added members of the American Association of Universities, which are leading research universities. Um, that's a great thing, but we want to add like actually attended universities. I say with a smile on my face for the AAU label. And we've seen enrollment uh, even at a challenging time, continue to grow across our footprint. And our footprint uh, provides a lot of those uh, students. And we want to be strategic in how we think about that reality. Well, how do you evaluate? Because people have made the comparison uh, about, well, if you had, you had Texas A&M, who's been such a natural fit, just a tremendous, as a, someone from the state of Texas, they've just been a perfect cultural fit for the SEC. And now you add Texas and people have said, well, there's a bit of redundancy there. But to me, as someone that, you know, there's 30 million households in the state of Texas, you can never get enough Texas. So how do you evaluate the possibility of redundancy uh, when thinking about adding Texas and Oklahoma when you did a couple years back? The, the question, and this goes back to a presentation to our entire group of presidents and chancellors in 2015, is examine the history of college sports and think forward about what that history uh, informs you, how, how that in history informs you. And 
you could see moments when membership transition happened around TV negotiations. Um, and I said in 2015 that eventually, in my view, and I, I provided reasons, um, the Big 12 membership would would, would change. Um, and that wasn't going to be the first time it changed. Nebraska left, uh, Colorado left, Texas A&M, right. and Missouri left. And those were like peer institutions. And so it was just an observation about thinking, you know, what do you want to do? And uh, I don't think every state at all is the same. I don't think the strategy would be the same. But when you had two that were clearly going someplace, um, in, in that circumstance, we think this was the right place for them to affiliate. And, and I'll just add one last clause, which is an interesting reality of our expansion is we restore rivalries. The other expansions haven't done that. So obviously Texas A&M and Texas uh, are kind of leading there. You retain Oklahoma and Texas. Um, Arkansas and Texas goes back decades. Just legendary stories about competition between those universities. Uh, Oklahoma and Missouri were a quarter of the Big Eight back in the day. It will now be part of the Southeastern Conference. And then there's you know, geographical alignments that will provide rivalries sooner rather than later, in my view. And uh, as someone that was on the call for Arkansas, Texas, I can assure you there's no love lost between the programs. And I'm sure Arkansas fans will like another bite at the apple when that opportunity inevitably presents itself. There's been speculation on our end uh, in the media, because why wouldn't there be, uh, about what the SEC scheduling model will look like in the future. The eight versus nine game conference schedule, the three permanent crossovers, where you have it rotating on a on an annual basis, the other six, so that you can play all fifteen other institutions over a four year period at their place and at home. So, as you've made these presentations to the presidents, what have been some of the sticking points and big questions that the presidents have had for you with the different scheduling formats that you guys have presented? Um. What goes on in the meeting room should stay in the meeting room. Um, I'll talk big picture when we added. Sure. Uh, when we added the two, my challenge to our membership was to engage in what I'll call blue sky thinking. Take a step back, think in an unencumbered way um, and what's optimal. And that caused us to just look through 40 plus different scheduling models. Uh, we've coalesced around moving to a single division. One of the realities is not everybody's going to play the same strength of schedule every year. That's just impossible. You could have a number one ranked team play a lower uh, strength of schedule than the number seven ranked or the, the seventh place team in our league, but number one ranked nationally because the number one ranked team doesn't play itself. <laughs> so it's, there's no uniformity. What we will do though is narrow the band of disparity around strength of schedule. Um, as we look at this single division model, I, I think that's really smart. And then the question is the number of games, how many games happen annually? Games will happen at least semi-annually, regardless of the number of games we have. Um, and that's the work to be done at our spring meetings. And you know, there are different opinions, but uh, I really commend our membership for wanting to, to be deliberate, to think through, to continually ask for information. Who knows? Something new may come up next week that could delay us. But we're at least poised, which I said last year, to make a scheduling decision in the sport of football. I'll also note, we don't just play football in this league, as the TV behind me reminds us. We have to figure out scheduling formats for every one of our 21 championship sports. I think the only one really kind of hanging out there right now is 
what our future baseball tournament looks like in two years. How many teams will be a participating will be participating along with the number of uh, uh, football games or our football format. And knock on wood, but the weather in Hoover does look really good this week, so we won't have to be too flexible as it relates to this year's baseball tournament, which uh, is remarkably exciting. As much as I love staying up till 2 a.m. watching some of those games, it was a drag the next day at work, but I digress. Uh, I'm just curious because we all understand the positives that would come with a nine-game conference schedule. You'd be able to preserve rivalries, multiple rivalries for each team. You'd be able to obviously kind of create new rivalries in the sense, but I'm curious at this point, I know it's an, if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of approach, but, but what are the benefits to an eight game conference schedule? Because the benefits for the nine seem to be very clear. Well, eights are modern tradition. You know, people forget this conference used to play six. There was a time when you would count six games and weren't all conference games back in the seventies. Uh, our standardized approach is a mid-80s, late-80s, and beyond. Um, so we've been with eight. One of the complexities we have to sort out is the early movement of Oklahoma and Texas uh, does impact non-conference scheduling. What we don't want to do is create a bunch of payments or, or short-term cancellations. So that's part of our learning experience. We're also really curious about what exactly precisely happens with the college football playoff. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. As we transition to the new era that is the 12-team college football playoff, Commissioner, when you look at some of the things that you still want to figure out in these first two years before we wipe the slate clean with a new... I guess it, I don't know if it's unless it's a new format, but it basically we clear the deck after kind of a two year test case to see what works and what doesn't. What will you be looking at most closely in these first two years of the 12 team playoff? Um, the ability to effectively administer the games at campus sites that rises right to the top. Um, how we uh, work collaboratively with bowl games with the thought that they'd continue to be involved in hosting, and then even beyond if they're not in the CFP. Uh, it will be interesting to see how the bracket functions. Uh, I, you know, I would anticipate some interest in modifications. Um, and then the dates, which is big picture, how the whole year plays out around football, and then the, the finite piece of where do games fit around the end of the season, conference championship games, the NFL season. Uh, with the idea we try to bring this to conclusion in a relatively 
uh, efficient time frame. As you look at administering a game at a campus site, what what challenges are we as fans not necessarily taking into account? Because all of us are like, man, we can't wait to have playoff games at home. But you, as a as a decision maker, what what are some of the big hurdles as it relates to getting those games played? Maybe in some cases in some smaller venues. Yeah, that, that's in smaller communities too. So you're going to take. Uh, really, really important football games at the end of the season and locate them um, on campus with relatively short notice. Uh, our fans don't appreciate, some probably experience this, but a forgotten December graduation takes place. And there's, in our league, a couple, three-week spread uh, on those dates. So maneuvering there, the NFL has expanded its regular season schedule and its playoff schedule. So that that impacts us. Um, those are the things we're going to have to be attentive to. And, and we've talked about it forever. Like To me, I'm a, I'm a college football fan. There's a great college football game on. I'm watching regardless of the NFL's presence. We've seen it on Black Friday. We've seen it on Thanksgiving. I've called multiple Egg Bowls that have gone head-to-head against the NFL and fared very well. So now that NFL's kind of kicked down the door and we have to go head-to-head, is that something that we should be concerned about as a sport, or is that something that we welcome as far as the challenge is concerned? Well, I don't know. I welcome it. That's a reality, and that you have to deal with reality. So, where we position games within a particular day has meaning. Uh, we we had that experience in COVID, and I really appreciate the ability to, to talk with the NFL commissioner and our staff with the NFL staff as we were trying to make plans. Um, and that's why I say, as we look to year 13, that 26 season and beyond, uh, some attention to the schedule is, is really important. And finally, Commissioner, we'll get you out of here with this. A lot of fans have, have expressed concern about the direction of, of, the, of the sport. I've remained eternally optimistic. I love the sport. When toe meets leather, man, it's still the game that we grew up loving, watching, experiencing with multi-generations in front of us. Uh, what would you say to the fans that are maybe a little concerned about the current direction and, and the hope that things are going to remain the same when the teams take the field and obviously play for big prizes? Well, I'm concerned as well. I think you have to be when we're having a variety of external factors that are disconnected, um, creating uh, points of pressure, right or wrong. And those evaluations will be made in courtrooms or legislatures. I think one of the real points of concern right now is the current state legislative activity that now is micromanaging college athletics. And if you if you read some of these bills that have been introduced, some adopted, um, we apparently have legislatures that are fine with state championships being the end of the road in college sports because they want to bar uh, enforcement, they want to bar communication, Um, And I think that's enormously problematic, and and I think it's unwise as well. And a a part of our conversation, our spring meetings, will be on on those very activities. I've said repeatedly, to have a a platform for national championships, we need national standards. And we're seeing the opportunities, name, image, and likeness has opened up, some of the activities concerning. It's not a regulated market. There's no oversight. Um, Even where states have had pretty good structure to their laws. I'm not aware of any state oversight or enforcement activity around those laws. Um, We have to get this right. And the judge that really is important will be the young people for the next two, three, four decades who either have 
the kind of opportunities you enjoyed uh, or track and field athletes enjoyed or our volleyball or softball or baseball enjoyed um, for the last decade upon decade? Are they going to have those same opportunities in the future? We have, we have work to do to ensure that, that future for them. Well, I have, I have faith that the right people are in charge that will uh, lead us into the future the way they've led us up to this point. I, I've nothing but faith in you and the other conference commissioners that we'll get it right. And we will be here every step of the way to help support you. I can promise you that. I appreciate the conversation, Greg. Have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. And like always, we like to dive into our mailbag, interact with some of our incredible listeners. We so appreciate all the messages that you've sent into the show already. Always college football at gmail.com. And you can submit your questions. Always CFB on both Instagram and on Twitter. We have a bunch, by the way. We have a long list of great questions that we're going to be getting to because we're not going anywhere, man. The offseason does not stop when we get into the summer months. So in June, in July, we'll continue to attack these mailbag questions. So submit them and we'll get to them as soon as humanly possible. Where are we going today, Coops? All right. First question comes from Ricky in Alabama. Asks, what or who determines when a college football team is a dynasty or when the dynasty is over? How long does it take to be a dynasty? One to five years, six to 10 years, or 11 to 15 years? My answer to this is actually very simple because of how cyclical college football is. For Let's just use Alabama as an example. Since 2008... It's been ridiculous, the play that they've been able to put on the field. I mean, just the consistency year in, year out. I believe up until just a couple of years ago, they had only played like two or three games in which they weren't in the running for a national championship over the course of a 10-year period. It was absurd, the level of consistency that they were able to match and in some cases exceed. But my definition for a dynasty has always been very simple. If you win three out of four, that's a dynasty. So, for instance, we're looking at Georgia right now. They've won two in a row. If they went three in a row, then, you know, put a fork in it. It's a case closed. Dynasty has begun. It's just a matter of how long will it live. But in order to be considered a dynasty, and this, to me, goes into the NFL. It goes into other places as well. Dynasty is three championships in four years preferably you have a gap year in there because if you can drop down and then come back up and win another one, that to me accentuates the dynasty. Or if you win one, take a year off, win two, what have you. So three out of four has always been the barometer for quote dynasty for me, but it's open for interpretation. You ask, Hey, well, it's 11 to 15 years. Is it some dynasties only have to last five years. So that's a pretty long time. <laughs> and in college football circles, that's, you know, forever if you will. So I think back to some of the others that have been on the fringe, for instance, Florida, win in 2006, win in 2008, get to the verge in 2009, but come up to short. You could make a case for them over a four-year period that they were at the top of college football, but 
I don't know. To me, it has to be championships one, two, not championships in contention for. So open for interpretation, open to suggestions. What do you constitute as a dynasty? Because I, Greg McElroy, I look at it, it's three wins in the national championship in four seasons. All right. Next question comes from John and Boulder. This is a long one. Hope you're ready. <laughs> Which group of five team has the best chance of beating a power five team this season? And he gives some, some examples here. Coastal Carolina at UCLA, Toledo at Illinois, UTSA at Houston, Boise State at Washington, Fresno State at Purdue, Fresno State at Arizona State, Troy at Kansas State, James Madison at Virginia, Ole Miss at Tulane, only game on this list where the G5 school is the home team, uh, South Alabama at Oklahoma State, and Colorado State at Colorado. What do you have, McElroy? It's a difficult one, but it actually, as I started to dive in, it, it became a little bit more clear to me. And it partly has to do with the turnover that we've seen at Houston and what's been built in recent years with UT San Antonio. Of course, this is a game last year that went down to the wire. Of course, like Houston is in their first year within the Power Five as a Big 12 member. And obviously, Dana Holgerson's gone out and tried to attack it and tried to flip the roster and tried to improve his personnel, improve his depth. But if you look at the pieces that left versus the pieces that have been added, I'm still kind of questioning as to how competitive they're going to be. There's possibly going to be 70 new faces on a roster of 125 people. So when you think about that many new additions via the portal, via the via the freshmen, via the walk-ons, you have that much turnover, I think it's going to be real difficult to create consistency. Whereas you look at what UTSA has put together the last couple of years, obviously a 10-2 season last year, undefeated in their conference, one of the best one of the best group of five teams a year ago. Yes, had a great game against Troy in the bowl game. Look at what's back. You bring back Frank Harris for, I believe it's his sixth or seventh year at quarterback. He's dynamic as can be. You bring back a decent amount of veterans. I'm looking at their two deep right now. And now this, by the way, take it with a grain because the two deep is obviously in flux. But thanks to our friends at Our Lads, they do a pretty good job of kind of figuring out who might fit where. Looking at their starters offensively, they have only one underclassman starter there on the offensive side of the football, and that's their running back, Gavorian Barnes. He's the only guy that's a, quote, underclassman that's expected to be in the starting lineup offensively. Everyone else, a junior and senior, in some cases, they're sixth-year players. So a lot of guys that have played an awful lot of football, then you go over to the defense, and you're trying to figure out, okay, where exactly are they going to stack up defensively as far as their experience on the college football playing field. Senior, junior, senior, sophomore, senior, 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 senior. That's right. One underclassman on defense as well, and that's their will linebacker, Trey Moore. So you look at their starting 22, they have a grand total of two underclassmen, several of which have played high-level football, several of which were actually impact transfer players at other places that decided to call UTSA home. So I'm very bullish on the Roadrunners this year. So that would be the group of five matchup against the Power Five that I'd circle if I were looking for an upset. All right, final thought. We don't do a ton of recruiting, as you know here, on Always College Football. But when there's a five-star prospect that announces his intent to attend a certain school, it's worth noting. And that's exactly what happened with Michael Van Buren 
a top 20 prospect in the class of 2024. He's out of Maryland, took some visits all over the country, but most recently visited Eugene, Oregon, and he has officially announced that he will join the Ducks here in the 2024 recruiting class. Now, what does this mean? Obviously, with Dominic Riola deciding on Georgia, it opened the door at a few other places. And it appeared, if you kind of read and kind of follow through the tea leaves, Michael Van Buren is one of the next best available. So he might very well here, when we fast forward a year from now, be in contention as the starting quarterback to replace Bo Nix, who will be ultimately leaving the Oregon Ducks after this upcoming season. So a massive get for Dan Lanning, continuing to press on there out West by leading the charge and landing one of the top signal callers in high school football. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out. It really helps out the show. And we look forward to our future interactions with you. Always College Football at gmail.com. Always CFB on both Instagram and on Twitter. So we look forward to those questions that you'll continue to submit that we can answer in future episode in one of our mailbags. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jack, Jake, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.